on, he's on, uh, he's on the page, same page as I am, I think, all right? So I believe that. Ephesians chapter 4, you're there. Um, young people are headed on out up there, so we're good. There was an article years ago in uh, the Country Magazine, and um, it talked about, had pictures of a community. I think it was Amish. I'm not exactly sure. And this community came together for what was called a barn raising. Now, you, you, you might say, well, I know what a barn raising is. A community comes together and they build a barn. No, this was not that kind of barn raising. Uh, actually, I do know of Amish communities that have come together and built. Um, in fact, uh, during my college years, we were in uh, Pennsylvania, Ohio, traveling uh, with a, a singing group, and we were in a church, and the church was built by the Amish. And the, the, actually, the Amish came in. They built the foundation. They did the entire church within like a week's time. And uh, the whole community came out, built this entire church building, a church that seated probably like 250, 300 people, beautiful church building, uh, did it for an, a, a Baptist church. It was an amazing thing. Uh, and they did that. But this barn raising wasn't that kind. This barn was already built. And the barn raising was, it had to be moved. I guess it was in a wrong area, a wrong place, or, or it just was in a place where there was water or whatever. So, so they decided they were going to move this barn. And, and you heard me correctly. Now, it, I don't know exactly the reason why it had to be moved, but rather than the expense of tearing a perfectly good barn down and erecting another, the, idea, the owner came up with the idea of moving it. And so here's what happened. Uh, and we're not talking about, you know, like a 12 by 12 building. We're talking about a barn that was, what, you know, 15 feet, 20 feet high, uh, probably, what, 20 by 40 or maybe even bigger than that. I mean, this was, this was a full-size barn. Well, about thigh high, all the way around the building, the ex exterior of the building, they put 2 by 12 boards fastened securely to the main supporting posts of this, of this barn. Um, the community came over, hundreds took their places along the sides of this barn, and at the call of the owner, everyone was asked to hold, grab hold of the boards and lift. And yes, they did. They lifted this large barn, and they, working in unison, they took steps together and they walked it to its new location. And had I not seen pictures of that and not, you know, believed that the article was telling the absolute truth, I probably said, no way, all right? But that's what happened. That's what they did. And, you know, quite honestly, you'd say, I just never believed that could happen. But they did have pictures, and they verified that this actually took place. You say, well, how did that happen? Well, I'll tell you what, it wasn't just one or two people. I mean, I know that Brother Susser and myself, if the two of us took one side each, we would have been fine, all right? But I know the fact is, you know, two people aren't going to move, aren't going to move anything in a, in a barn uh, as far as a barn is concerned. And 10 people aren't and 20 people aren't. But when you get the collective effort of, of a whole community together working, there's a lot of things, amazing things that can be done. It was a collective effort of the community all coming together with the same thought in mind. We're going to move this barn. And they did. My friends, I tell you this morning, there's a great work that needs to be done for the Lord Jesus Christ. There are barns that need to be moved in every community around this, this nation and around this world. And I tell you, folks, that unless God's people work together, the work won't be done as it needs to be done for the glory of God. The barn won't be moved unless everyone does their part. And Paul is going to begin in Ephesians chapter 4 to challenge us about that very important truth that everyone needs to be involved if the barn is going to get moved. A lot of folks today don't understand the importance of the church. They don't understand the need of the church. They don't understand why they should be part of and join with a local New Testament church. But Paul is going to share very forcefully and very powerfully in these verses the first six verses and actually all the way through verse 16, the importance of the local New Testament church in your life and how important it is because there are barns that have to be moved, okay? We're not talking about physical barns, but there are barns that have to be moved. There's work that needs to be done for Jesus Christ, and that is only going to be accomplished when the community of believers, when the building of believers, when the church 
does its work and every believer in it does their part. And so today, I challenge you as God challenges you from Ephesians chapter 4 to think very carefully about what God expects. The Bible says this in verse 1, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you that you walk worthy of the vocation wherewith ye are called, with all lowliness and meekness, with long-suffering, forbearing one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, even as ye are called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. Now he continues, and he starts to talk some more about this same subject, but these first six verses are going to be where we focus this morning and learn a very important truth about walking worthy. Let's pray. Father, please open our eyes that we may understand and comprehend and grasp the powerful, important truth of Ephesians chapter 4. I pray, Lord God, that I wouldn't say what I want to say, but that your spirit truly would direct and guide the words that are being said today and that your spirit would have free course in the hearts and lives of listeners to uh, help us see what we need to do. And I pray that each person in this room that knows Jesus Christ as Savior would be sensitive to Bible truth today For those who don't know you, that your spirit would convict them of their need for Jesus Christ. And we will thank you for what you'll do today. We pray these things and ask them in Jesus' name. Amen. We find right at the start of Ephesians chapter 4 what I called the moving plea. It is a moving plea that is given by Paul to the church. I, therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you that ye walk worthy of the vocation wherewith ye are called. Now, you got to understand, if you're going to understand what's going on here, what Paul was talking about when he said, I, therefore. Um, Paul is, there is a premise upon which everything to come is based. In fact, if you take time to read through the rest of the book of Ephesians, you'll find, I think, in Ephesians chapter 5, right at the beginning, you'll see the I, therefore once again. In chapter 6, I believe it is, you'll find therefore. There are a couple more therefores in the rest of this book, and each one seems to direct our attention back to what has already been written. That is the case here in chapter 4. As Paul begins chapter 4, it's based upon everything that's been given. Now, uh, you're going to be thankful that I'm not going to preach everything in the first three chapters because it took us about three, uh, about four, five weeks to get there, to get here this morning, all right? So we are going to briefly give you a synopsis because you've got to have in mind what's going on if you're going to understand the premise upon which Paul is going to ask you to walk worthy of the Lord because you see that right at the start, don't you? That is the command, that is the instruction. So what he's commanding us is based upon, the premise of it is based upon what's already come. So what has already come? What did Paul already talk about that gives us a reason to understand that this, what is coming, is very important? Well, the foundational instruction has been this. God has saved us by amazing grace. That we were dead in trespasses and sins. That we, in fact, in the last chapter, he focuses, and actually even at the end of chapter 2, on Gentiles who were in the church. The church was made up more of Gentiles probably than than any other group. Gentiles and Jews did uh, coexist in the church at Ephesus, but a great number were Gentiles. And Paul was writing and addressing them to help them understand, look, you have been made part of the family of God just like Jews. Jews, Gentiles alike, we're all part of one family. That was all the amazing work of God. To make us part of the family of God, to save us, to to allow us to become become a child of God is a wonderful privilege that no one deserves, no no one has won, no one has earned. It is totally a gift that is given by God's grace. And that, my friends, is the foundation for everything he's going to instruct in the rest of this book. And it's interesting because if you understand the book of Ephesians, just as most all of the church, letters written to the churches, most all of them start with doctrine. They start with doctrinal truth. 
And that's what he did basically in the first three chapters. He taught a lot of doctrinal truth about salvation, about how someone is saved, about how, about how God calls people, about how God wants people to become part of his family, and he provides the way for that to happen. And it's by no effort of their own. It's totally by grace through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. It's not of works. And that whole basis and all the doctrine he teaches is the basis upon which everything he's going to tell us now in this chapter and the rest of this book is based upon. And now he's going to get to practical living. So this is the great part of the preaching, you know? This is the exciting part. This is the, hey, this is what we're supposed to do now. So we're going to get into that and we're going to talk about that in further, in further depth. But you cannot understand what we're supposed to do now until you understand Bible doctrine. You cannot comprehend and, and grasp the importance of all that is written in chapter 4 and 5 and 6 unless you come to the understanding. I did not deserve salvation. God gave it to me as a wonderful gift. And the God of heaven who made me part of his family and, and made me one in this wonderful family of God, this building of God called the church. When God did that, I owe him everything. And if you understand that truth, that is the premise upon which everything that comes is found. And that is the driving motivation and should be the driving motivation upon everything which is written. Do you know that there are some preachers today who will tell us that doctrine is dry? In fact, there are some preachers that don't preach doctrine anymore. They just preach little, you know, nice, nice sermonettes. There are churches that are like that in our day. And one of the reasons they do that is because they say, well, doctrine is dry and people don't like doctrine and people get tired of doctrine. And, well, Paul actually warned Timothy that there would be a day when people wouldn't endure sound doctrine. That's very true. People don't like doctrine. But you've got to understand that doctrine is the basis for Christian living. You've got to understand that the doctrinal truths of chapters 1, 2, and 3, if you don't understand that, if you haven't grasped that, if you, haven't, if you don't live in light of that, then you won't follow chapter 4 and chapter 5 and chapter 6 of the book of Ephesians. And quite honestly, he's going to deal with a lot of Christian living here. He's going to talk about unity. He's going to talk about, about the church and gifts that he's given to people. He's going to talk about dealing with sin in your life. He's going to talk about following God. He's going to talk about being filled with the Spirit and, and Christ in your home. He's going to talk about how to overcome the devil in chapter 6. But you know what? Those things will not mean what they ought, and you won't follow through unless you understand the first three chapters of this book and the doctrinal truth. Doctrine isn't dry and boring. Doctrine is the foundation upon which everything is built as far as our Christian living is concerned. You say, well, why is it so important? It's important because it gives us a reason for doing that which is right. But you know, there's another reason why it's important in this premise. This I therefore is really important to the chapter. Because... Doctrine is the basis that keeps you going when things get hard. Hey, listen, what he asks us to do in this chapter about getting along together, getting along with people, getting along with you people is hard. Okay, that sounded mean, didn't it? <laughs> you folks are wonderful to get along with. But getting along with people is a hard thing. Dealing with sin in your life is a hard thing. Overcoming the, the wiles of the devil is a hard thing. Living the Christian life, walking in the spirit and under the control of God and having a Christian home is a hard thing. Do you realize that understanding the doctrines of chapters 1, 2, and 3 and having this firmly ingrained in your mind is one of the things that's going to push you forward when things get tough? You say, why? Because look, when it gets hard trying to be unified with God's people and when you have some issues with someone in the church, I know you never do because everyone in this church is just so easy to get along with. But when you have issues with people, whether it's in this church or with God's people somewhere, you know, you'll quit unless you understand this. Jesus gave his all for you and he offered salvation as a free gift to you and you could, didn't earn it, you never could earn it and he is the one who asked you to do this. It'll keep you going. It not only then is the basis that says we need to live for God because all he's done for us, but it's also the thing that's going to keep us going when the going gets tough because I don't want to discourage you, but the things he's going to talk about in these next few chapters are not easy to do in the Christian life. In fact, they're totally contrary to our nature in many ways, in many cases. And so 
the premise, the foundation for everything that's found is, is based upon this. God saved you. You didn't earn it. You didn't win it. God, because he's just a loving, gracious God, sent his beloved son. Before the foundation of the world, he designed in his mind and in his heart that this was going to take place to pay for the sins of the world. And he did that and offers as a free gift eternal life. And that, my friends, is the reason why what we're going to see about walking worthy is so important. I, therefore, the prisoner of the Lord. So we have the premise. We have the prisoner. He says, the prisoner of the Lord. Now, this is great, because when Paul calls himself a slave of the Lord, by the way, do you remember that? Last week in chapter 3, we learned right at the beginning, Paul said the same thing. He says, look, I'm a prisoner of the Lord. He wanted the people to know that. He had to say it two times. Okay, sometimes people don't let it sink in. No, I think there's a reason why he shared that again, because he wanted these people to know that what he's going to be asking them to do in, in these next few verses are something that he's worked on and he's working on in his own life. He's just a prisoner of Jesus Christ. He's not living for himself. He's not a preacher that says, all right, do this, and not, I'm not doing it. You know, kind of like the dad who tells his son, don't ever drink. And then on Saturday, he sits there and watches football games and he's got a beer in his hand, you know. It's kind of like, what do you think the kid's going to do later in life? Because what he's saying is not consistent. But when Paul says, I'm a prisoner, he wasn't saying, please pat me on the back and realize what it, how difficult it is for me to be a slave of Christ. He's not trying to say that. What he's trying to tell us here is, look, I'm doing the same thing as you are. I've got the same battles you've got. I've got the same things that I've got to face in life that you have to face. And maybe even Paul could say magnified because I've got a bunch of churches I'm working with. So I don't have just one church where there's people that are cantankerous. But Paul says, I got the church at Corinth that's doing all sorts of bad things. And I got to work with them. And I got the church at, at, at Colossus. And I got, I got all these different churches that I have to work with. He says, but I'm a servant of Christ. And it doesn't matter what happens to me. What matters is what God wants me to do. I'm just a slave of him. And what an attitude. By the way, I think that's an important attitude to have in order to follow through with what's found here. So we find the premise. We find its prisoner. And then we find the presentation. When he says, I beseech you. See that in the middle of the verse? He says, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you that ye walk worthy of the vocation. Uh, this comes from a guy not only who is seriously devoted to Christ, he is Christ's slave. I mean, bond slave chain slave but he is seriously committed to these people and this word beseech means to call near to implore sometimes even to beg it's an intense plea it's not just a hey got something for you here got a little golden nugget this morning okay this is a hey wake up this is important and i want you to do it because i'm a servant of christ and i'm doing this and this is the way a christian is supposed to live and so, my friends, he's saying, I beg of you this morning, please hear me. This is vital for every Christian. And here's what's sad. A lot of Christians don't even understand what it means to walk worthy of the vocation where with their call. And yet, this is something that Paul says is based upon the fact that God saved us by grace. It's based upon the fact that as, as a, a loving authority Paul was begging these people to do this because he saw it as vitally important. And you know, a lot of Christians kind of just go their own way. They do their own thing. Well, we have our church at home and we do our own thing and we go and this is just the way it is. And, and Paul said, hey, look, folks, that's not how it's supposed to be. Christians. Christians are supposed to be involved in a local church and they're supposed to walk worthy of the Lord. And part, part of walking worthy of the Lord is... is as much as you don't like it, it's getting along with people. In fact, that really is what it is. So we find it laid out for us then, and we find uh, the moving plea in verse 1. We find the main principles in this passage. We find in verses 1 and 3 the main principles. Two basic principles that are given. Now, they can be presented as one because actually one is built upon another. We're supposed to do what in verse 1? Walk worthy, okay? 
The second premise or the second principle that God is going to teach us is we're to work on unity. Okay? Walk worthy, work on unity. Can you say that with me? All right? Walk worthy, work on unity. All right, let's say it again. Walk worthy, work on unity. Those two principles are the basis for everything that's written in the first six verses. And they are the lessons, they're the message that Paul was trying to get across to his church. The first verse, the first few phrases kind of direct us that way and, and get our attention and tell us this is vitally important. And then he begins and he jumps right into the principle and he says, walk worthy. And it's very powerful language here. It is not just a suggestion. It is a command. It is something that God expects from believers. And, and, you know, what's interesting to me is I've had people say something like this. Well, I could never be worthy of God's salvation. But God says, walk worthy. Well, you know, Christian, we could never be worthy. God says, walk worthy. And if you think it's a mistake here, it's interesting because he told the, the, the uh, church of Colossus in Col Colossians chapter 1 and verse 10, that ye might walk worthy of the Lord unto all pleasing. That is one of the things he prayed for them about. He told the church at Thessalonica in 1 Thessalonians 2.12 that ye would walk worthy of God. So he says, hey, this is your job. This is what, I'm, this is what I, I want you to do, and this is what I'm praying that you will do. He told three different churches. So this is not a mistake here. So we got to understand then, if it's not a mistake, why do some Christians then say, I could never walk worthy of the vocation where we can go? Um, I don't know. Maybe it's because sometimes we want to excuse what we should be doing. So let me share with you what I found the word to mean. You know, worthy. Walking worthy does not mean that you're going to deserve salvation. The vocation where you're called is the, the, the vocation, the calling, the calling by which you're called is that you were called to be part of the family of God. That, that is clear. That, that much is clear. What does it mean, though, to walk worthy? Does it mean I'm deserving of it? Because that's how we understand worthy most often. That's how we look at the word worthy. Well, I'm, gonna, I'm, supposed, to be, I'm supposed to be deserving. No, no, because you're, you're right. You can never be deserving of salvation. It's a gift. You can't earn it. can't win it. We already know from Ephesians 2, 8, 9 that can't happen. Do you know what it means to walk worthy here? It's really simply this. It means to walk suitably or appropriately. So when God says walk worthy of the vocation, he says walk suitably, walk appropriately as a Christian. What is suitable and what's appropriate? Are those not fair questions to ask? I mean, if we're supposed to do that, then we better know. Okay, what, what he's going to deal with in the, next, in the verses that come, specifically in verse 3, primarily in verse 3, but then even the verses that follow all the way through to the end of this chapter until the next therefore, these things would all be included, but definitely verse 3. We've got to walk worthy and work on unity. All right, let's say it again. Walk worthy and work on unity. All right. And see, you, follow, you use alliteration sometimes it makes it harder to say, doesn't it? Okay? So you walk and you work. Okay? You walk worthy and you work on unity. So walking worthy doesn't mean I live in such a way I deserve heaven. But what walking worthy is all about is saying, hey, this is suitable. This is appropriate for a Christian. Now, what's so profound about this is we find in these verses that this is not an easy thing to do. That's why I said that you're not always easy to get along with. And I'm not always easy to get along with. Because human beings are all different. And when you come to a church and you have, at least in the church at Ephesus, you have Jews and Gentiles who grew up in different home households, who grew up with different cultures, who grew up with different mentalities and thinking in life, and who, who grew up in, in totally separate and, and, and really a totally different life. To bring these two together and have them work together in unity is not always easy. And so, so it is in every church. Because we, we're not dealing with Jews and Gentiles here in this church. We're dealing with all sorts of people who have different things. We're dealing with men and women. We're talking about people who, who grew up in different homes, who have different mentalities.
mentality, different thinking. Some who grew up in Christian homes, some who grew up without uh, and not in a Christian home and weren't saved till later in life. We have some people who are mature believers, have been saved for a lot of years and have grown in Christ. We have other believers who are new in Christ and haven't been saved all that long because the church is made up of all sorts of different people. We have young people, we have old people. Old people think differently than young, young think differently than old. And sometimes it's hard getting along with people like that. You don't understand. Old people don't understand why the young people don't get it, and young people don't understand why the old people think the way they do. And, and, and that's just, that's a fact. And he says, this is going to be difficult. It's going to require great effort, but you can do it. And what is appropriate is that you have the attitude that says, I will walk worthy of the vocation where I've been called. Now, if you've got that attitude, then you're going to work on unity. I, I said that they're, they're, they're kind of tied together, and they really are. You will not work on unity if you're not walking worthy. And if you're working on unity, you're working at, and you are walking worthy. Because they are just inextricably linked together in these verses. And so he says, and he continues the thought. Uh, see, notice actually, actually, it's one sentence starting right at the beginning. I therefore, and all the way until the end of verse three. And verse three begins by saying, endeavoring to keep the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. Now, the first word of verse three is what? Endeavoring. Oh, you love this word. It means we're supposed to labor at this task. It is going to take work. It's not going to come naturally because, as I said, we have different people with different ideas. We have different education levels. We have different likes. We have different dislikes. Uh, we, we all need to be considered. And sometimes we need to be kept in check. Sometimes we need to be corrected. Sometimes we need to be praised. Sometimes people need to be uh, directed. And sometimes people need to accept direction. The Holy Spirit is going to help us work on this and will direct us in the way, but we got to cooperate with him, and to do so is going to take work. It was interesting um, because someone wrote about Peter and Paul, and it was, it was kind of interesting to me. I, I saw this as part of this passage. Someone said this, throughout the history of the church, God has been able to use people with different gifts and graces. Henry Nguyen noted the difference between Paul and and another powerful leader of the early church, Peter. And here's what Nguyen said. Peter, the simple, uneducated fisherman who had hardly any knowledge of the theological debates of his time and who responded to Jesus in an impulsive way without much distance or criticism. Paul, on the other hand, was a well-educated disciple of Gamaliel, a Pharisee, sharp, intelligent, deeply concerned about truth and willing to persecute those whom he considered in error. And he said, Nguyen wrote, the church is built on the foundation laid by Peter and Paul. There are not two churches. There's one. But two very different men were at the head and leaders, if you would, in the foundation and the beginning of the church. In fact, you know what's interesting? These two men had an argument over an issue. You can read about it in the book of Galatians. So much so that Paul went to Peter and said, you're to be blamed. And I don't think a lot of people did that to Peter. Let me tell you. First of all, because Peter was, well, Peter was kind of one of those, almost like one of the sons of thunder. You know, people, Peter will let you know. But Paul did that, and Peter needed it, and Paul was right, at least in that case. But you say, well, then Peter must have hated Paul. You know what he wrote about Paul in the book of Peter? He said, our beloved Brother Paul. Here were two guys that couldn't have been from two different ends of the spectrum, but who worked on unity. Who gave themselves to it. Important men in the church that God used in a wonderful way, an amazing way to, to found and give us a great portion of the Bible that we enjoy, the New Testament. Two men who couldn't have been more different whom God brought together and who worked at this matter of unity. 
So if it could happen there, let me tell you, it can happen here in our church. It can happen in any other church. If people are willing to work at it. And he says it's going to take some work because you've got to endeavor to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Another writer wrote this about this passage. There can be no doubt that the church at Ephesus was composed partly of converted Jews as well as Gentiles. Now, from the different manner in which they had been brought up, there might be frequent causes of altercation. Indeed, the Jews as well, um, the Jews, though converted, might be envious that Gentiles were admitted to the same glorious privileges uh, as with themselves without being initiated into them by bearing the yoke and burden of the Old Testament Mosaic law. He went on, the apostle guards them against this and shows them they should intensely labor. They should work hard. They should work diligently to promote and preserve peace and unity. By unity of the spirit, we're to understand not only spiritual unity, but also unity of sentiment, desire, affections such that springs from the Spirit of God. And then he ended by saying, by the bond of peace, we're to understand a peace or a union where the interests of all parties are concentrated, cemented, and sealed. My friends, that's what God expects. He expects us in this church to work at unity. Those are the principles that are given in these first six verses, and those are what God demands. So now let me share with you number three, the mandated practices. The mandated practices. You say, what? I don't see any practices. Well, then you miss verse two because we skipped that. But if you look at what he says in verse one, he says, walk worthy. Okay, one sentence again. And part of that is endeavoring to keep the unity of the spirit. But between that, those things, he tells you how it's going to happen. Okay, why is this so hard to do? Well, because it requires everything we don't want to do. It's the truth. It really is. And look at what he says there in this, in this passage. I mean, you don't hear a lot of people preaching about loneliness these days, do you? You don't hear a lot of people preaching about let's be meek or let's be long-suffering. I mean, those are things that people don't like to talk Forbearing one another in love. Those aren't subjects that you want to hear preached on a lot because, because they're things that kind of step on your toes and because they're things that are not easy to do and, quite frankly, we don't want to do. And I don't say that because, because I'm judging you because the truth of the matter is they're hard for me. And so God gives us these practices that have to be part of our life if this is going to happen. So look, if we're going to have... We're going to walk worthy of God, which is going to lead to a unity, a real unity of God's people in the way that God desires and God wants. Here are some things that are going to have to be part of your life and mine. And listen, it's not just, well, if the preacher would just get right. Okay. Uh, You know, if, if the deacons would just start doing these things, we'd be in good shape. Here, here's the truth. God's given us, I think, a wonderful unity. So this is not a message I feel like we got to preach because everyone's out of line. Uh, but I'm thankful we've got to it because the fact of the matter is it always needs work. And there really won't be a time when we won't have to work at this because these things we can constantly get away from. First thing that we have to have is lowliness. Lowliness. What is that? Well, literally, it means there must be a humility of mind among all believers if the church is going to function as a whole and accomplish the task of reaching a lost world and discipling and growing believers until we all become like Jesus Christ. It's not going to happen until all believers have this humility of mind. Thayer, a guy who wrote a definition of biblical words and terms, He defined that as saying this, a deep sense of one's littleness. I think that's a good way to understand it. And there are a lot of people in the church who don't understand that one. And by the way, there are some pastors who don't understand that one either. A deep sense of one's littleness or a humble opinion of yourself. 
People who have a high opinion of themselves ruin unity all the time, every time. And by the way, we have, we have men in the church and, and we have men who are, are believers in Jesus Christ telling people that, that you just need to love yourself. And that is so contrary to Christian doctrine. It's not biblical. And it's not right. Our biggest problem is we love ourselves too much. And we need to lower our opinion of ourselves. It's not self-esteem we need. It's, it's self-humility, if you want to say. It's, it's a removal of self. It's saying, okay, look, if there's going to be unity here, I have to just, my attitude about myself needs to be, I'm not important. So I have a different opinion. Big deal. Um, I can express that. That's fine. I can share with leadership that, 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 that my, my thoughts and my ideas. And there's nothing wrong with making those things known with a right spirit and a right attitude. But you know what? My, ultimately, my heart needs to be, I'm going to be lowly in mind. I'm going to have a deep sense of my own littleness, a hum, humble opinion of myself that says, hey, what I want is not important. You know what? What is, it? is important? What God wants. And when people in the church have that kind of attitude, there's no telling what can be done for the cause of Jesus Christ. But there has to be lowliness. And no wonder he said, endeavoring to keep the unity of the spirit because there's so many times where I want what I want. Isn't that true? Come on, have you ever been there? You've seen kids in the store and sometimes we can be like them a little bit, you know? Kids in the store, I want what I want and I'm going to keep crying and I'm going to keep yelling until mom or dad buys it. You know, that candy bar or that thing that I saw that I grabbed and my parents took away from me, I'm going to let them know until they get it for me. And that's the kind of attitude sometimes people have. And loneliness has to be present in my heart and in my life. A, a sense of my deep sense. I love that definition. That's going to be my new definition for loneliness. A deep sense of one's littleness. Let nothing be done through strife or vainglory, Paul wrote to the church at, at Philippi. But in lowliness of mind, let each esteem other better than themselves. Isn't that a great way to define it? That is the very same passage in Philippians 2, when two verses later it says, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Jesus was lowly. Then notice this, meekness. The word means gentleness or mildness. Now, it doesn't mean you don't have any opinion. It doesn't mean you can't express a differing opinion. It doesn't mean that you can't let your opinions be known in a meeting or anything else. It doesn't mean as well that you have to be a rug on the floor for people to walk all over. What it is, meekness is, is a mild disposition, a gentleness in working with people. Understanding this, we're all different. So if we're going to get along, I've got to be meek and you've got to be meek. We both have to have a gentleness in working with one another. So, look, we differ. We disagree about something. By the way, this needs, is needed in marriage. We disagree about something. Okay, so what do we agree on about what we disagree about? You know, most people won't even talk, talk about that. But if you'll just take time to find out, a lot of times, what's interesting to me, I, and I found this in counseling, and I found it even at, at times in our own home, that a lot of times what we fight about are things that we ultimately agree on, we just don't agree with how it's supposed to be done ultimately. So look, one of the things that my meekness is all about would be if my wife and I have a disagreement, and we never do, we just I, all the time agree... She's just got this sweet look on her face. I, I wish you could see it. I wish you could flash it on the, the screen here. All right. We, we don't get along about, every, about everything, and there are times we have arguments and disagreements. You know, there's times my wife's just wrong. Yeah, it's just, just, just the way. And I just got myself in real trouble there. I just want you to know it's going to be a long afternoon, okay? I will be napping outside, okay? All right. Um, no, here's the truth. We, we, dis we may disagree about things. But the truth of the matter is we can either keep fighting about it, disagreeing about it. You don't have to yell and drag out fights. We can disagree about it. Or, or my wife and I can both be meek. It's mild, gentle. And say, 
we don't agree, but here's what we do agree on, and here's what we would like to see happen. We know something needs to happen here, so here's what we can agree on. And it may be that my wife gives one time, or it may be that I give, or maybe that we both give. And when we both give and come together working for unity, we accomplish something that the fight that was dividing us ruined. And all it took, really all it took, it, it, it's a serious thing, but was meekness, a gentleness that says, Okay, we don't, we're, we're both mature adults. We don't see eye to eye on this subject, but we do agree on these things. So what do we agree on and what can we do then and how can we, if you would, compromise, not truth, not right and wrong, but compromise so that we can both get to the same place and walk together. And do you know there's few, seriously, most marriages struggle right there at meekness. People aren't gentle with one another anymore. You're wrong. And she may not say it, but I'll know it. I'm wrong. And we can stand our ground that way or we can be meek. I, I'm telling you some of you, some of you have that going on in your marriage. And it needs to change. There needs to be a new attitude, a gentleness. And do you know our Savior was that way? The Bible talks about Jesus being meek. And let me tell you, Jesus didn't let people walk all over him. He called some whited sepulchers. He threw out the money changers in the temple, but he was meek. Do you know why? Because people who were willing, he was gentle with, so that he would go to the home of Zacchaeus and eat with a sinner so that that man could come to faith in Jesus Christ. He was gentle. With those who were hardened, he said, this is the truth. You folks are white as sepulchers. You're hypocrites. And you need to get right. He was meek. He had this gentleness about him. And even in working with those people, he, those who were, were willing, those who were open, he worked with a gentleness, a mildness. Wow. Verse 2 is, is preaching for a couple weeks, really. There's got to be long-suffering. Long-suffering is slowness in avenging wrong, literally. That means that I'm not going to seek to get someone back right away. But it also could mean an enduring temper. In other words, it takes a long time to get to the boiling point. Now, I know we all have different personalities. And some personalities lend themselves to, hey, this is what I think. And others lend themselves to, yeah, we're okay, but they got that inward burn, you know? And although they're not yelling outside, they're yelling inside. And both, both need to go. There needs to be a long-suffering, a, an enduring temper that says, I'm going to work with people as long as I possibly can. Some people are frustrating. Not me, but some people are frustrating. Some people, you know, love to stoke the fires. True. Maybe in your home, in the church, certainly. And God says that we need to be long-suffering. We need to be people who are slow to get angry, who don't hold grudges. So, so that, look, look, if I really was hurt, I need to have an attitude that says, I want to get it right. I, I want... I want I want to be right with that. There have been situations where one person in a church has gone to someone else who they offended and has gone to make it right. And the person said, well, I don't know if I'm ready to forgive you. Well, that's not the long-suffering type attitude here. It's an attitude that just, just says, hey, look, I, I'm not going to hold grudges. I'm not going to hold on to these things. I'm not going to keep them. I am going to be long-suffering. Then there has to be forbearance. This is great. It means to put up with or to bear with those who might not do what they ought or think as they ought. 
Here's the truth. In, in, in any given church, you may be absolutely positively right and everyone else may be wrong. It's possible. It is. Okay? But what, what good does it do to the church? If you cause a fight, because you're right and no one else is. Seriously. Now, if we're talking about truth and no one else is with you, you need to go and find a church where the truth is taught. Because you, you don't compromise truth. But we're, when we're talking about a, a building program, and by the way, building programs are notorious for ruining and hurting unity in the church. They are. If you don't know that, just... To, well, preachers won't tell you that, but preachers will tell one another that. And it's true. It's notorious. It, it starts, in fact, I, I know one pastor who is, they're thinking about a church building program, and it caused all sorts of problems thinking about it. Not, not here, okay? They're thinking about it. And they started to talk about it, and they started to have discussions about it, and they had meetings about it and everything else, and, and, and the whole thing just oh, caused problems. Look, look. Forbearance means you learn to put up and bear with those who aren't where they're not where they're supposed to be. I, I wish, uh, you know, I have a wish for probably every Christian in this in this room, to some extent. Unless you're a visitor, I don't know. You haven't mentioned before. I, I so my things I'd like to see happen in your lives. You, you didn't know that, huh? Okay. Do um, has everyone gotten to those places? I'm not going to tell you. <laughs> but the, the question is not whether they've gotten there. The question is whether I'm going to continue to work with them and pray that God will move them along. Forbearance. When Paul wrote to the church at Colos, when he uh, wrote the book of Galatians and he talked about the fruit of the Spirit, he talked about these qualities. In fact, two or maybe even more of the four qualities that we just talked about. These things are talked about often in Scripture because they're issues. So the question is, are you what God wants you to be? And you say, Pastor, you only got through three verses, there's three more. Well, let me give you hope, okay? Um, the last point is there's the one point. Okay? In verse 4, 5, and 6, you, you see the word one talked about over and over and over again. Do you, do you see that? Okay. Because he was making a point. There's not two God the Fathers. By the way, there aren't two faiths. There's not three faiths. There's not four faiths. There's not everyone's going to get to heaven their own way. There's one faith. Only one way to be saved. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. Those are the words of Jesus Christ. Any, any, any church that does not believe Jesus Christ is the way, the only way for someone to be saved, the only way for someone to be saved is a false church. There is not more than one faith. And his point was there's, there's one baptism. There, there is one spirit. And he just goes through a list of things. He says, there's one thing, there's one thing, one thing, one thing, one thing. So, so look, there's supposed to be one body of Christ. All working together for the cause of Christ. Here's the truth. No building program is too great a challenge for Ephesians 4, 1 to 6. If every Christian in this room would have the Ephesians 4, 1 to 6 mentality. We can get through a building program. We can get through COVID. We can get through, we can get through all the things that have happened, not just in the last year, but or throughout the centuries of the church. We can work through all of them if God's people will endeavor to keep the unity of spirit and the bond of peace. And if they'll all work at it by having that lowly, long-suffering, meek spirit and heart and attitude. I'll tell you, I came to this passage and 
And I thought, you know, I'm working towards unity. And then I came to verse 2, and I started to dig into those words and think about them. And, and here's the truth. I, I got work to do. And I think, I believe that there are others in this church who also may have some work to do. Um, I'm, I'm not perfect in our home. I admitted it there. In a message before everyone. Not perfect in the home. I, I'm not perfect in the church. And quite frankly, this wouldn't be needed if everyone was. So the question today is, are you part of this one church? And if you are, then are you part of keeping the unity of spirit and the bond of peace? Or are you doing something else? Because if you're doing something else, then Ephesians 4 is for you. And if you're in the I have been working towards unity. I have been doing, and these things are, are true in my life. Then here's the, here's the fact. You've got to keep endeavoring at it. There's more work to be done. That was the challenge that really came my way. i got more work to do in this. In my home, in the church, wherever it may be, I've got some more work to do. Let's bow our heads and close our eyes. Mm-hmm.